0: So, a bit of interaction to start with. If you had the opportunity to give a Christian one bit of advice to help them go on through their life and keep following Jesus, what would it be? One thing. Sing it out. Not a rhetorical question. Put Hang on. No, hang on. Down the front, what do we have? Pray. There you go, pray. Yep. Floyd? Perseverance through hard times. Yep. Keep meeting. Love. 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 Kenan, okay, did you say something? Yeah, keep meeting. Keep meeting together. Anything else? Bible. Read the Bible. Okay. Okay. Trust, trust, trust God. Trust, trust, trust God. Yeah, you said it three times. It must be important. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, well... Here um, are James's last three bits of advice. I think this is uh, what he's saying to us in this passage, and uh, James is giving us wisdom to help us follow Jesus. And his last bits of advice would be patient, be, prayerful and persevere together. not just persevere, but persevere together. James' concern for every Christian in this passage has been his concern all the way through. That the Christian who's facing trials, struggling through that, struggling with their own double-mindedness, won't wander from the truth. Verse 19, if anyone should wander from the truth. That's James' concern. And it's a well-founded concern, isn't it? I wonder: do you know someone who was once a keen Christian, maybe came to this church and is now nowhere with God. Uh, I, I know a guy, a minister, who's left the church he's in and is now cohabiting with a woman in the town in which the church he left. He's walked away from the gospel. It's very sad. Bring it back a bit. Are you concerned about someone who you think might be wandering from the faith. Uh, bring it back a bit again. Um, do you know someone who's just weary? They're just finding the Christian life tough. It's hard to follow Jesus. They're just weary. They need some encouragement. Do you know someone like that? Now, maybe, just maybe, um, you're one of these tonight. That's it's possible. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, Okay. <laughs> Well, James' advice to all of us, wherever we are on the continuum of Christian struggle, is to patiently and prayerfully persevere together. They're my three points. If you like outlines, patience, prayer, persevere together. James says that it is vital for the Christian to be patient. So I wonder, are you patient? If you're sitting beside someone you know, look at them and say, am I patient? What are they going to say about you? Are you a patient person? Can I say that if you are patient, then I think you're doing pretty well because our culture, I think, teaches impatience. I mean, we've all got a smartphone. What's that about? We can kind of do everything instantly and when it doesn't work, we're upset. I uh, came across an article online... And the heading was, Impatience is a Virtue. Impatience is a Virtue. And in the article it said that brands, you know, companies, must invest in micro-moments, offer tailored on-demand services. They must exist in the micro-moment of the right-now consumer. They must be there, be quick, be useful for a mobile, self-interested society. Uh, ours is an impatient culture and it rubs off on us, doesn't it? So as Christians, we will have to be constantly readjusting our mindset when it comes to following our eternal and patient God. Eternity and impatience, do they, are they compatible? And you notice in this passage that eternity is sort of the backdrop. Of all that he says. Look at verse 7. Be patient, then until the Lord's return. Eternity, be patient. Verse 8. The Lord's coming is near. Verse 9. The judge is standing at the door. So eternity is forever. And we must be, we must use our time here wisely to patiently prepare ourselves so that when we meet Jesus, the one who's just standing through that door that we meet him as our saviour and not as our judge. Well, impatience is a human trait and so James wants to teach us about the importance of patience and he uses three examples to do it. The farmer, the Old Testament prophet and a man called Job. So look at verse 7, the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Now, I don't know if you've... Floyd's a farmer. I suppose Miles is a farmer. We've got a few farmers here. I used to be a farmer. Farmers' lives revolve around a principle that most of us don't get and won't like, and that is that their livelihood, their valuable crop depends completely on something over which they have no control. That is the land and the rain. So whether they like it or not, they have to be patient. They have to wait for the land to yield, to produce, and they have to wait for the autumn rains to sow the crop and the spring rains to finish the crop. That's farming. When you think about it, there can be nothing dumber than an impatient farmer... Because it doesn't matter how impatient he is, he can't actually speed up the process. He's just got to wait patiently for the crop to grow. James is saying that's the Christian life. We are to be patient and wait while things that are beyond our control take their course. God's purposes. And we can be patient, we ought to be patient, because we actually know the character of the God whose purposes we're waiting for. Verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. It's always sensible to be patient and wait for God. So while the world around us grows rich and affluent, we are to be patient and happy to say, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 15, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. We're to be patient to wait for the Lord's return. We're to be patient with one another. Talks about not judging, not grumbling. That's what we do, isn't it? When we get impatient, we start picking on one another. And does it help? No. We're to be patient. Patience means waiting for God to work things out according to his will. Like a farmer waits for his crops to grow. How do you go at that? Not sure how you go at that, but James says, be patient. It's a command. It's not not an option. Then he takes us to the prophets. Patience means persevering through struggles and trials, like the Old Testament prophets did. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. Now, the Old Testament prophets, in a way, are like us. They're God's people placed in their communities to bear witness, to bear testimony, to speak the word of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets, like us, look back to what God had done and what God has said in his word And they look forward to the Messiah coming, the first coming, Jesus coming. We look to the second coming. And in their place, in their time, they speak God's word. That's what we're supposed to do. And history shows that anyone who will do that clearly and uncompromisingly will suffer. And they'll have to persevere and be patient through that suffering. In Acts 7, Stephen is giving a speech. And he says, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. And true to form, when Stephen finished his speech, that word from God, guess what? They stoned him to death. So the prophets are an example of patience through suffering. They kept patiently speaking in the name of the Lord as they suffered they did not give up they did not give in but James point if you look there is actually about their example says that as we look back at their lives we count them as blessed because of their patience because of their perseverance I don't know if you know much about Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah is one of my favourites. He started preaching as a young man and he preached the word of God to one evil king after another. He finally preached the word of God to King Zedekiah who had him thrown into what sounds like a sewer. I admire, I draw encouragement from Jeremiah. I want to be like him, not thrown in a sewer, but I want to have his strength of character, his strength of purpose. I'm sure you've all heard the the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who would not bow down to the idol, who would not give up their faith in God and are thrown into the fiery furnace. Do you, do you get inspiration from them? That you just go, I want to be like that? See, we look back and we take, take courage, we learn from their patient, persevering faith. We see their lives, we read their words, And we know that their suffering was worth it. And James is saying, if you thank God for them, then make sure you don't give up yourself. He's saying, make sure that you are patient in the face of difficulty so that the people who look to you now and the people who look back to you in the future will go, wow, they kept going patiently, persevering through the difficulties In their life. So can I ask you, are you a patient Christian? Are you by your patience an example an encouragement to those around you? If you are an impatient Christian, I guarantee you will inspire no one and encourage no one. We've got to be like the Jeremiah's and the Daniels and the Shadrachs. That's what James is saying to us. Be patient. It bears fruit. And then he takes us to the character of Job. Verse 11, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Job's perseverance, do you know his story? He was a very wealthy man, a very godly man, and one by one everything was taken from him. His livelihood, all his stock, everything was taken from him. His children were all killed. His health was taken from him. And it went on and on and on for a long time. But James's point is what the Lord finally brought about for Job. Job went through all that and it says that <clears throat> uh, he never accused God of wrong that he trusted God all the way through that. And, but Job's life ends in restoration and blessing. His is not just a story of suffering. It is an example of God's compassion and God's mercy. That's James' message to us. I don't know what you're struggling through at the moment, but his message to you is you must be patient. Your struggle will end. Your trials will one day be over. One day you'll get to go and be with the Lord. On that day you'll realise that the compassion and mercy you believed about God is real. And you'll go, wow, wasn't my patient perseverance worth it? But you see, if you walk away, if you give up, you say it's too hard. I'm done, I'm out of here, you'll you'll never get to see the compassion and mercy of the Lord. We must be patient. patient. Patient because we're not in control. God is, we trust him. Patient so that we will be a blessing to others. And patient because we know and trust in God's compassion and mercy. Be patient. Then James brings us to prayer. Now um, there's a bloke, I forget his name now, his name starts with H, back in uh, in church history and he tells us that James was a man who was given to constant prayer. He, he earned the, the nickname Camel Knees because he was on his knees so much that his knees became calloused and hard because he was always praying. So James speaks to us about prayer as someone who prayed. He wants us to be praying about everything. And when you think about it, prayer is the necessary companion of patience. That's because while we may not be in control, we know and trust the God who is in control. It's always good to know and talk to the person in control, isn't it? I remember once I came up against a very difficult and officious council employee After the third conversation, in which there was no progress made again, I said, look, I'm sorry, but I need to talk to the person in charge. They put me through. I never spoke to that person again. And everything went ahead beautifully, because now I was actually talking to the person in charge. That's what prayer is. We're talking to the sovereign Lord, the compassionate, merciful God, who's also our heavenly Father. Well, prayer is the subject of verses 13 to 18. It's mentioned in every verse. So if you haven't got your Bible, pick it up with me, verse 13, and please follow along. We're going to get a bit detailed here in a bit. So verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Now, the word there for trouble is the same word as the prophet's trouble, and it's talking about every kind of trouble going. So have you got any kind of trouble? Any kind? Any kind? James says, let them pray. He's saying pray about everything. Is anyone happy? Life's going well. Your Christian life's going good. Job's good. You know, Your girlfriend says she loves you. I don't know. Life's good. You're happy. Pray. Praise God for the good things. Don't pray for the good things to come and then forget to thank him. Praise God. Literally sing a psalm to God. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. See, James is saying pray about everything, bad times, good times, sick times, when your double-mindedness is back in full force and sin has taken over again, invite someone over to pray with you. Confess your sins to them. Confess your sins to God, to one another. Pray, pray, pray. And it all comes with that really assuring word that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You know, if you are in Christ, then you are declared righteous before God. Your prayer is powerful and effective. But we come to these interesting verses, verses 14 to 16. They're difficult to translate and have caused some controversy over the years. Uh, but I think that's more about history than the difficult. I don't think they're that difficult really. So I want to take some time now and show you what I think they mean and how this all fits into what James is saying in this passage. So let me start by nailing my colours to the mast. I'm convinced that verses 14 to 15 are not talking about physical healing, but spiritual healing, dealing with sin. They're not about fixing physical sickness, but about bringing a wandering double-minded Christian back to single-mindedly following Jesus. I think that's what he's talking about. Now, having said that, can I say that I pray all the time for people who are sick? At the moment, I'm praying fervently for my granddaughter who is desperately, desperately sick. I believe in praying for the sick. I believe that God answers those prayers according to his mysterious and goodwill. And if I stop now... And we just took time, we could all go around the room and we could tell stories of prayers that God has answered for people who are sick. Some of you are sitting in this room right now. I pray for the sick, but my reason for praying for the sick is God's compassion and mercy, verse 11, not verses 14 to 16. So let me show you my thinking Uh, Because, as I said, I think it actually helps us understand what James is saying to us. I want to just ask two questions of the passage. First, what do the words mean? There's some particular words. And second, how does the context help us? That's basically how you interpret the passage. So first, the words. In verses 14 and 15, there are two words that are used for the word sick. The, the uh, word in verse 14 is asthenio, Greek word. Now, in the Gospels, this is not most commonly used for sickness. And in the letters, the rest of the New Testament, it is 99% of the time translated as weak. So I think it, it, it better reads weak, um, the person who is weak. Uh, for example, 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. In weakness, same word. Romans 14, 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Same word. Asthenio. So down to verse 15, there's a different word used for sick there. This time it's chemnonta or chemno or chemne, which means weary. Weary. The only other place that I can find this particular word in the New Testament is Hebrews 12 verse 3 and it says consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart so the two words translated commonly translated as sick are just as easily translated as weak and weary The next thing I want to look at is the phrase in verse 15. In the NIV, it says, the prayer offered in faith will make him well. Now, if you've got an ESV, it says it will save him. That's because that's what the word actually means. It's sozo, it means saved. Now, James uses that word six times, and every other time, it is unambiguously talking about salvation, like down in verse 20 turn back the sinner from the error of their ways, You will save their soul from death. It's exactly the same word. So I find it peculiar that it's um, not used in that way in uh, verse 15. And then verse 16, the word healed. <clears throat> Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's interesting that confessing your sins brings healing. Um, that word there depends on its context and it can mean either physical or spiritual healing. And in the letters in the New Testament, it's used to describe spiritual healing. So, for example, 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's clearly talking about salvation, about spiritual healing. So that's a bit about some important words in the passage. There's two more things, though. There's the anointing with oil. Now, I've grown up being told that the anointing of oil is medicinal. It's, you know, you rub oil on and it makes them better. There's actually very little support for that. But you go to the Bible, uh, of the 78 occasions where someone is anointed with oil, the vast majority are... a. a sort of a physical act with a symbolic significance. So what happens is someone is consecrated, they're set apart to the service of God. They were not serving God, they decide that they want to or they're asked to, they're consecrated and then they anoint them with oil to mark that occasion. So it's a symbolic thing that says this person's life's changed. I think that's actually what James is using it for. But we'll come back to that. Then lastly, there's the context. What's happening in the passage? What's happening in the book? Immediately before and after, James' concern is the spiritual life and walk of his readers. Patience in suffering, persevering through trial, and then in verses 19 and 20, bringing back the wandering sinner from sin so that they might be saved. That's his concern. The letter itself, as we've seen, is taken up with James' concern that believers are becoming double-minded. Their faith appears to be dead. So he's concerned about their spiritual state. So here, as he concludes his letter, it makes perfect sense that in these closing paragraphs, he helps us think about how to deal with our weakness, our weariness, our sin, And this context is where the meaning of the words naturally take us. But then there's the real clincher that comes from the context for me, and it's the example James uses of Elijah in verses 17 to 18. Now, if James uh, has physical healing in mind, one of the greatest examples of physical healing in the Old Testament is in 1 Kings 17. There's the son of a widow who dies. And Elijah is called and prays and he comes back to life. Like, you can't get a much better healing thing than that, right? But that's not where James takes us. He takes us to chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And the issue that's at hand in chapter 18 is that Israel is double-minded. In fact, in the midst of this incident that James recalls, this is what Elijah says to Israel. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. See, Israel had this this history of they'd wander off after Baal and that wouldn't work, so they'd wander back to God, that wouldn't work, so... And Elijah says, I'm going to bring Israel to its knees. I'm going to pray for a drought. And he does. And there's a drought. And then he has this, you've got to read 1 Kings 18. It's a cracking read. There's this amazing um, demonstration of God's power. And Elijah prays for rain and it rains. So the issue for the Israelites is the same as the issue for the people. James is writing to the issue for us. Sin, spiritual sickness, spiritual waywardness is the concern. And when you read through these verses, it's right at the centre of the passage. Verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will save the weary person. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And verse 20, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the area of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. <clears throat> this is what I think James is saying. He wants us, each of us, to be so serious about our spiritual state, our spiritual weakness, our double-mindedness, our sin, that verse 14, we will ring up, a trusted leader, an elder of our church and say, you know what, I'm in serious trouble. I've, I'm, I've wandered away from the faith. Please come over. Please pray with me. And when they do come and when they do pray, mark that occasion by getting them to anoint you with oil. They used to do that kind of thing in the old days, you see. To mark that day of confession of sin, that cry for help, that moment of genuine, honest, and open repentance as a day that you'll remember. Mark that day of repentance, and if it's going to help, get them to tip some oil on your noggin. <laughs> you know, you're saying, I've, I've, I'm in a bad place, I've confessed my sin, I want you to pray for me, and I'm, I'm going to consecrate myself to the Lord. I'm going to, um, I'm coming back to, you know, That's what I think James is saying. In fact, James says we must all take sin so seriously that as brothers and sisters, verse 16, we should confess our sins one to another. Are you any good at that? Saying to someone, I'm really struggling with this or that or the other thing and confessing your sins? Have you ever been to a Bible study? You've got anything to pray about? Oh, no, not really. Really? James would say, what? None of you are sinners? I think we've got lots to pray about here. (laughs) Friends, we need to stop acting as though we're strong and admit that we're weak. We need to stop pretending that we don't struggle when we are struggling. We need to stop pretending that we've got it all together, that sin is not a problem for us but confess our sins to one another. And when we do that, it changes the dynamic of our church. You see, if I confess my sins to you, that's going to make you more ready to confess your sins to me, isn't it? I know wisdom's got to be used around these things, but I don't think wisdom's our problem. I think we're too proud. I think Jesus would say we're a bunch of hypocrites. You know, there have been wonderful moments over the years here at OEC when this is what's happened. Someone has come and been this honest with me and told me what's going on in their life and they say, I'm in serious, debilitating sin. Please pray for me. Help me to change. And when that happens, I tell you what, immeasurable change happens in their life. They're the best moments, the best moments. Praying in the way that James recommends here um, does bring back brothers and sisters who have wandered and it does save their souls from hell. But all that unearths what I think is James' other big idea in this passage, in my last point, persevering together. As you read through James and this passage, you realise just how personal and together He's expecting us to be. Everyone's on the same level. Brothers and sisters, we're all members of a family. We confess sins to one another. We're all in this together. And James finishes by telling us that we must persevere in this together. 19 and 20 again, my brothers and sisters... If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, see, it's just anyone, isn't it? Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. See, he's saying that my perseverance, my weakness, my weariness, my waywardness is your concern. And that your perseverance, your weakness, your weariness, your waywardness is my concern. There's this quirky little story told about four people. The people's names are everybody, somebody, anybody and nobody. There was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. In the end, everybody blames somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. James wants everybody here tonight to take responsibility for anybody who isn't here tonight. Why don't you look around, who's not here? Write their name down and when you go home, give them a call. Go and find them and bring them back and in so doing, you'll save their soul From hell, we must not wait because the Lord's coming is near. The Judge is standing at the door. James wants us to persevere patiently and prayerfully, but he knows that we'll only do it if we do it together. So, my last words to you are James's last words. Let's patiently and prayerfully persevere together as we wait to see our Lord.